Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the attempt to elect another speaker, with Tom Emmer getting the nomination, but with 26 House Republicans opposing him, along with Trump, who was calling him a rhino, Tom Emmer has decided to drop out of the race. So we are back to the Chaos Caucus. As the shutdown of the legislative branch of government reaches an all-time record of three weeks. Joining us is Lawrence Jacobs, the McKnight Presidential Chair in Public Affairs, the Walter F. and Joan Mondale Chair in Political Studies, and Director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance in the Hubert H. Humphrey School and the Department of Political Science at the University of Minnesota. His books include Politicians Don't Pander, Political Manipulation and the Loss of Democratic Responsiveness, Who Governs, Presidents, Public Opinion and Manipulation, and Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History. Then we'll assess whether the insurrectionist House Republicans are fascists or nihilists or both and speak with Rebecca Gordon, who teaches in the philosophy department at the University of San Francisco and for the university's Leo T. McCarthy Center for Public Service and the Common Good. She is the author of Mainstreaming Torture, American Nuremberg, the U.S. officials who should stand trial for post-9-11 war crimes, and is now at work on a new book, on the history of torture in the United States. A regular contributor to Tom Dispatch, we'll discuss her latest article, Trump's Schedule F for Failed State. Then finally, with Secretary of State Blinken addressing the UN Security Council today, insisting the US does not want to see the war between Israel and Hamas become a regional conflagration, we will look into Iran's role as an escalation looms following warnings from Tehran that a ground invasion of of Gaza is a red line for Iran and its proxy, Hezbollah. Joining us is Iranian-American historian Mazier Behrouz, who was born in Tehran and has taught at UC Berkeley and Stanford University, and is currently a professor of history at San Francisco State University. He's the author of two books on the history of the Iranian left, Rebels with a Cause, followed by Perspectives on the History of Rebels with a Cause in Iran, a collection of interviews and articles on leftist movements in Iran that was translated into Persian and published in Iran. His latest book is Iran at War, Interaction with the Modern World and the Struggle with Imperial Russia. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings and armed and angry followers are paralyzing our legislative branch and threatening to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judicial branch. We are in a fight between crazy America and normal America, which we have to win. Please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Lawrence Jacobs, the McKnight Presidential Chair in Public Affairs, the Walter F. and Joan Mondale Chair in Political Studies, and the Director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Hubert H. Humphrey School and the Department of Political Science at the University of Minnesota. His books include Politicians Don't Pander, Political Manipulation and the Loss of Democratic Responsiveness, Who Governs, Presidents, Public Opinion and Manipulation, and Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lawrence Jacobs. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Lawrence. And President Trump, basically, uh, even though the House Republicans nominated Tom Emmer to be Speaker, he gave up, he gave in, because I'm pretty sure it had a lot to do with former President Donald Trump, who wrote on Truth Social today, voting for a globalist rhino like Tom Emmer would be a tragic mistake. Emmer is out of touch with Republican voters and never respected the power of a Trump endorsement. So there you have the giant ego kingmaker deciding that Tom Emmer didn't kiss his rear end. Well, I think it's a it's a really a somber moment. And even at a time of intense partisan uh, disagreement and division, there's still a very important role for organization to bring structure and 
what's happened in the House of Representatives is anarchy. Political parties no longer matter in the U.S. House of Representatives. It's a, it's a body that's ruled by faction and by the fiat of Donald Trump. It's a, it's a dangerous situation. There, it's ungovernable at this point. And it's three weeks, right? Has there ever been an incident in the United States where the government has been shut down even for a day or two, let alone three weeks? Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a very serious situation moving um, over time because you've got uh, the government shutdown looming. There was a temporary uh, measure that was passed to uh, provide a, few, a month, um, and that's rapidly closing. There's also an emergency budget request from President Biden um, regarding military, and all of that is nothing can be done on it. So it's just going to sit there, and there's there's no there's no sense in even pretending like there's a a future here. The the, the path forward is not promising. And you know Tom Emmett, don't you, Lawrence? Oh yeah, I've known him for years. He's uh, you know, he was a state legislature. We did some projects together, and we talk on occasion. So yeah, I know Tom. And is his original sin the fact that? He accepted that Joe Biden won the presidency? You know, I think it was a couple of things. But, yeah, I mean, uh, Tom Emmer was among a small group in the House Republicans who voted for the 2020 outcome and certified that election. Um, he's also someone who would not endorse Donald Trump in the primary, saying that the, the reason for primary elections is to let the candidates, uh, you know, have a chance to compete. And he wasn't going to preempt that by endorsing Trump. All of that is, you know, massively offended Donald Trump, which is why he came out today against them in such harsh terms. Right. But the sad and depressing part is that almost in a robotic way, he, he has a kind of cult following in the House of Representatives. Yes. The, the following that Donald Trump has in the House of Representatives mirrors the following he has among Republican primary voters. Because those primary voters are pulling the string for both um, the members of the House um, and they're listening to Donald Trump. They're, they're the kind of the hidden string that's tying all this together. And it's, it's a dangerous situation. And do we know what percentage of the public are in this kind of cult? I mean, at the end of the day, the whole thing that makes me crazy and makes me wonder how this country can function is this anti-majoritarianism that's metastasized into this paralysis. I mean, everything that seems to be happening and going wrong in this country is the fact that you, you don't have majority rule anymore. So the majority, this, the silent majority, if you will, are helpless. Well, I mean, we, did, we, did, we have had elections, and uh, you know, Joe Biden was elected with historic numbers. Um, the Republicans are supposed to do very well in the last midterm elections in 2022, and they did not. Uh, in fact, they lost control or lost a seat in the U.S. Senate. Um, and if you listen to the Republican uh, leaders, they're very upset. They've, what's happening here is not an advertisement for the swing voter who often determines outcomes of elections to uh put Republicans in office. They, they're proving that they cannot govern. Right, but the anti-majoritarianism I'm talking about, an example is, for example, there's a majority on the, both the Republican and Democratic side in the House and in the Senate to aid Ukraine, but you can't even get a vote. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's the way our, our institutions are structured. If you, the, the will of the majority is never going to be you know, pass through Congress um, in a simple way. That's never happened. So I, that, that concerns me less than the fact that we've got Donald Trump as a, um, you know, acting like a dictator and to have so many uh, elected Republicans, you know, bowing to him. That's a bad, that's a very bad pattern. And the utter breakdown of governance in the House of Representatives, the, the political party no longer matters on the Republican side. It's just a collection of factions with 
with the Trump faction in particular, uh, dead set against rule. Uh, Steve Bannon, the propagandist for Trump, said the purpose here was to decapitate the Republican Party. Well, I mean, where does that leave you? Well, is he a nihilist? Is he a fascist? Or is he both? Yeah, well, I mean, we could we could debate the, the meaning of those terms, but I think he's certainly someone who is um, uh, dead set against uh, the role of political parties in governing. And that's what we've always had. You need parties to bring together individuals who, uh, you know, are, are pulled apart by their different interests and their ideas and 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 obviously their their um, their hopes for power in themselves. That's what parties do, and that's what's not happening in the House. But if you don't want parties, if you don't want a legislative branch, then you want a dictator, don't you? I mean, and the people that are paralyzing the House at the direction of their cult leader, their dear leader, Donald Trump, they've all bought into the lie that he won the last election. So if you buy that lie, then doesn't that automatically buy you a ticket in terms of being against democracy? Uh, well, I, I certainly think the, the election deniers um, are, uh, you know, repudiating um, what is the clear outcome in 2020. Um, so, yes, I, I think it's a, it's a serious threat against American democracy. Um, you know, I think here, here are a couple other scenarios that may develop in the coming days. There's a group of Republicans and Democrats who have been talking for some time about um, providing uh, the authority for the current Speaker Pro Temp, Representative McHenry, to have the authority to bring legislation to the floor and that they would move bipartisan legislation that way. Um, Trump may have overstepped um, his following. It's, it's not... It's significant, but it's not it's not uh, necessarily um, uh, controlling. And there are other factions in the Republican Party, including those who are conservative but believe in governing, um, and a more moderate. You know, they call them problem solvers. Um, that you know may come together in the coming days behind some other alternative. And and that's where I would look. I think what Trump has done is is such a violation that he may have overstepped. So you think there's enough sort of institutionalism there? I mean, you would think that just based upon the separation of powers, the senators and House members, they're in a different camp. They protect their prerogatives. So you're suggesting then that there may be enough people on the Republican conference to recognize that you can't have a former head of the executive branch, picking and choosing what you do. And essentially, in effect, Jim Jordan was a surrogate for Trump, wasn't he? he? Had he become speaker, then Trump would control the legislative branch. And if he becomes president, the executive branch. So is there a realization going on there, do you think? I think there's a realization that the Republican Party is uh, rudderless, that it's no longer a governing party that it can't keep going on this way or its reputation could be seriously damaged, um, not just today, but for the years to come. Um, I mean, we're heading into a government shutdown. Um, to me, that looks increasingly likely. Um, and I think there are, you know, there's a group of Republicans who might be willing to work um, across the aisle, given these extraordinary circumstances. Um, if that happens, you know, I think there are several different ways it can go. Probably the most likely is that um, Representative McHenry is given some sort of augmented power. And you'd have Trump and you'd have the Freedom Caucus uh, viciously against this because it would end their power. But it might be necessary. Well, but it'd be incredibly good for the country, wouldn't it be, if you could pass all of the, th the things that the country needs? Yeah, that's not going to happen either. It's not going to pass everything <laughs> the country needs. It'll pass a very small number of items, um, including a scaled-back budget um, and maybe this package uh, that Joe Biden has asked for. But it's going to be very limited. But at least the government will be open and operating. 
uh, which is not happening now. But will it hold off a government shutdown, which is going to happen in, what, 25 days? I think it's even less than that now. Um, No, I think I I think the government shutdown is 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 impending. Hmm. I'm not sure exactly exactly how that's going to be. If all that what I'm talking about can happen uh, quickly enough, but maybe, maybe I think that that's that's the you know kind of the optimistic uh, scenario, but it's still very bleak, and it suggests that the Republican Party is no longer a governing operation. It's it's failed in its basic mission, and the, you know historians for years will write about this moment because we've never quite had something like this. And you're suggesting the moment will get worse because there'll be a, yeah. a government shutdown in, let's say, 20 or whatever, how many days it is. So Yeah, I think things will get worse. And I think, uh, I think they're very bad now to have the three top leaders in the Republican Party in the House all denied the speakership is incredible um, and done in such a cavalier manner um, and under the dictates of Donald Trump. You know, all of that is is um, is uh, something we haven't seen, and I think it'll it'll shake up some of the Republicans. All you need is remember there's only a five seat difference between that, the Republicans and the Democrats in the House. If you had just five Republicans who considered a bipartisan uh, measure, um, you know, you could have a kind of a rump um, uh, governing operation, and what it looks like. I think those details have to be worked out, but I don't think that I think that becomes more likely as this crisis uh, continues to evolve and maybe deeper. Well, Lawrence Jacobs, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Okay, good. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Lawrence Jacobs, who is the McKnight Presidential Chair in Public Affairs, the Walter F. and Joan Mondell Chair for Political Studies, and Director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance in the Hubert H. Humphrey School and the Department of Political Science at the University of Minnesota. His books include Politicians Don't Pander, Political Manipulation and the Loss of Democratic Responsiveness, Who Governs, Presidents, Public Opinion and Manipulation, and Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of whether the insurrectionist House Republicans are fascists or nihilists or both. He's a real nowhere man Sitting in his nowhere land Making all his nowhere plans for nobody Doesn't have a point of view Knows not where Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Rebecca Gordon, who teaches in the philosophy department at the University of San Francisco and for the university's Leo T. McCarthy Center for Public Service and the Common Good. She's the author of Mainstreaming Torture, American Nuremberg, the U.S. Officials Who Should Stand Trial for Post-9-11 War Crimes, and is now at work on a new book on the history of torture in the United States. A regular contributor to Tom Dispatch, her latest article is Trump's Schedule F for Failed State. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rebecca Gordon. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Rebecca, and we are witnessing, of course, a failed legislative branch. It's uh, now been three weeks without a legislative branch. This is an all-time record. Uh, the rest of the world must be absolutely amazed. And that's not to say that Trump's finger... And, then, and of course, Trump's fingerprints are all over this. Not only has he paralyzed the legislative branch, he's already captured the judicial branch, and he may well recapture the executive branch. So in many ways, the fact that Tom Emmer dropped out, even though he got the nomination for Speaker, had a lot to do with the fact that Trump today posted on Truth Social, quote, voting for a globalist rhino like Tom Emmer would be a tragic mistake. Emmer was out of touch with Republican voters and never respected the power of a Trump endorsement. Well, there there you have it. The egomaniac is saying, unless you kiss my, uh, I can't say the word Something, on the air, yes. uh, then you're toast, buddy. 
That's what? exactly right. And he, he honestly believes this. And in fact, what we have actually seen in the last two elections or attempted elections for Steve Scalise and then for Jim Jordan is that, in fact, Trump's endorsement was not sufficient to win a speakership either. As uh, some folks are pointing out, it's a lot easier to line up five or six votes against a candidate than it is to line up all the votes that you need in order to actually put someone over the top. But this really is a moment of tragedy. I mean, it would be funny if it weren't so tragic. And we are now, as you know, coming closer and closer every day to the moment when the stopgap um, effort to keep the government functioning for another six weeks is going to be up in the middle of November. And we may be facing a situation in which not only will the Republicans not support another extension or an actual deal, but they wouldn't be in a position to do it anyway because they can't run the House. This is an example, uh, as I said in my recent article for Tom, of clowns to the right of us. And it's, it's pretty scary. And in your article, your heading is Republican contradictions. Are they fascists or nihilists or both? Now, clearly... The idea that there's a strategy behind nihilism is almost a contradiction in itself. But there does appear to be a strategy here. And the nihilist-in-chief, and the fascist-in-chief for that matter, <laughs> is uh, Steve Bannon. He's directing these House insurrectionists. He's on the air f four hours a day cheering them on. Exactly. And I think there is a strategy and I think that some of the fools that are doing Bannon's bidding without even knowing it on the far right, the crazy right in, in the Republican Party in Congress, don't even know the ways that they are being used. And I think, you know, somebody like Matt Gates, who is probably more interested in seeing if he can become the next governor of Florida than anything else, really has no interest in governing. But... People who would like to see an authoritarian government rather than no government are quite happy to take advantage of this flailing about in order to demonstrate to the American people, look, government doesn't work. What we need here is someone with strong authority to take power and to run the country like a business, as we saw Donald Trump do so terribly well for four years. And I think you're absolutely right in this sense that among some people who are genuine fascists, and I would certainly put Bannon in that camp, this is, this is serving their interests. When I talk about the nihilists, um, I'm also talking about uh, the people who would like, as um, Grover Norquist said way back in the Reagan administration, when, when so much work was done to dismantle the apparatus of providing for the general welfare of, of society. So, you know, to undo welfare, to undo, um, under Reagan, we actually saw the dismantling of state mental health systems, which were supposed to be replaced with, hospitals were supposed to be replaced with local community-based clinics, which never happened. So much dismantlement of civil rights. What Grover Norquist said is that um, he doesn't want to abolish government. I simply want to reduce it to the size where I can drag it into the bathroom and drown it in the bathtub. And this is, in fact, a piece of what the people who want to run Trump's transition team would like to see happen should he be reelected in 2024. Well, I imagine America's right-wing oligarchs would like that too, wouldn't they? Because they've already captured the Supreme Court with the help of Leonard Leo mm -hmm. and the Federalists. Exactly. No, I think they'd be very happy. And, you know, the, the plan, there is an actual multi-million dollar funded plan to put in place for a transition should Trump win. They, they looked at the chaos that ensued when Trump won in 2016. And when I say they, I mean mean the Heritage Foundation, the America First um, 
legal foundation and a whole series of other far-right organizations who have been working, laboring for many years to develop this four-pillar plan that they hope to put in place as soon as Trump is elected for a transition. And the pillars include um, in installing uh, people, as many as 50,000 people, who have been properly vetted as um, as civil servants in the government, and I'll talk a little bit about what what the technical thing has to happen to make that possible. They also intend to provide training for those people in the way of Trump, and they plan to bring in a uh, their plan 2025, which is a literally thousand-page document which goes through every segment of government and describes what they would like to do, how they would like to drown it in the bathtub. And all of this is in service of this theory, constitutional theory called the unitary executive. So all that means is that the executive branch should be a single monolith that is run entirely at the pleasure and at the will of the president, rather than what we have now, which is a somewhat distributed executive branch with many different departments and agencies, some of which are actually explicitly outside the direct control of the president, but most of which are the the president has the right to appoint currently about 4,000 key people at the highest levels of these agencies. But there are another um, 50,000, there are 2.2 million civil servants, and there are a number about 50,000 that the um, Heritage Foundation and their minions would like to see placed directly under the president's control. And what this means is that we take away the essentially nonpartisan, competitive competitively examined civil servants who are the people who keep the wheels of government turning regardless of who sits in the White House so that the majority of the people's work can continue on. These are nonpartisan positions, and the idea is to take out of that 2.2 million, 50,000 of them, and turn them into partisan appointments and essentially apply this to anybody who is in any position to advocate in any way for any policy within the agency that they work for. So the idea is to put into Trump's hands really the power to make the executive unitary under his control. Now, of course, Donald Trump doesn't have the capacity to vet even one person. Look at how many chiefs of staff he had. Uh, But these people have been spending years drawing up a list of these 50,000 people and vetting them, and they're ready to go the day after the election if Donald Trump wins. So let's talk about Schedule F that Trump concocted in order to stack the civil service with his cronies. What Schedule F is was, um, so there are five existing lists, A through E, of um, of the kinds of people who, because of the particular work they do, can be political appointments that the president can appoint. And so that's about 4,000 people now. Very briefly, from October 2020 until, um, until he ended his presidency in January of 20, 2021, Trump had implemented a sixth schedule, Schedule F, which lists, which basically is anybody who has any power in any possible way over policy. That could be as simple as you're an intern in a position to send a memo with three possible choices to your boss. That could place you on Schedule F. Now, as soon as Biden, and he created this Schedule F by an executive order. As soon as Biden came into office, he got rid of Schedule F. He issued another executive order rescinding it, so it it doesn't exist at the moment. But as soon as Trump is elected, and as soon as he's um, inaugurated, the plan is to bring back Schedule F, and at that point, they will actually know who these 50,000 people are that they want to bring into government. 
and they'll be ready to go on day one of a new administration. It's a very frightening prospect. So the notion, though, that Trump will be reelected in spite of, you know, we're witnessing today, he was in the same courtroom with Michael Cohen. Uh, mm-hmm. The evidence against him is overwhelming. He's been indicted four times, 91 charges against him. Unfortunately, it doesn't look as if he can be held to account by politics for some reason or other, a huge percentage, maybe a third of the country, simply supporting more. As he's, the more indictments, the more they double down in their support for mm-hmm. him. So the more, de- well- more that each indictment is greater proof that he is a tragic, sacrificial, Christ-like figure who is being hounded by the powers that be. And so this, yeah, it, and as long as he manages to prevent any of the criminal cases from beginning um, before his election or before the election or even probably before the primaries begin in January, he's going to have a strong argument, which could go all the way to the Supreme Court, that he can't be prevented, that he can't be tried while he is running for the presidency. We'll have to wait and see on that. And it's really, it's, it's very chancy at this point, but there is a very real possibility, especially because of the way that the electoral system works in the United States, the presidential electoral system, that he could be reelected once again without actually winning the popular vote, which is how he was elected um, in 2020. Right. I mean, well, in the, 2016. The unfortunately, yes. unfortunately the, there are some very, very mendacious people like Mark Penn, uh, mm-hmm. who's, who's running the No Labels campaign, that are either doing it out of personal greed or out of some kind of political malice. But he's, his No Labels could you know, take away the alternative that disaffected Republicans have. Uh, and That's, I'm sure, yeah. given, given what's happening today with the House, I'm sure there's more and more of the traditional Republicans who just find uh, this whole thing so distasteful, and they would be looking yes. for a place to vote, and along comes no labels to give them a f- chimeric choice. And then you've got this grandstanding guy, Cornell West, <laughs> getting money from the Nazi-loving billionaire, mm-hmm. another, and you've got RFK Jr., they're all and he's spoilers. more likely. It's really hard to to say from which side RFK Jr. is likely to pull his votes because right. I, you know, there are libertarians on the right and on the left in this country, and I could see him pulling from both sides. It's, but all of that will be at at Biden's expense, and will help Trump. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you know, the point. Those w- people, I'm less clear. Again. Right. There may be some disaffected de- Democrats who will go that way, but my guess is if they actually run a candidate, which it's not clear they can do and do in all the states, because it takes quite a bit to qualify for the ballots. I mean, there are so many barriers to actually getting on the ballot, unless you are one of the major candidates. But yeah, I see that. No, no labels will probably get on all the ballots. I mean, they've got well, the it'll money. be interesting to see. Yeah, they do yeah. seem to have the money, and money is what it takes, as we know. Right. right. Um, on the other hand, if you want to talk about money, at this point, the Biden campaign is sitting on a lot more than Trump is, for what that's worth. Well, <laughs> Trump's money goes to legal campaigns and into his pocket. So, uh, I know. Still. So, see, this is the other problem. When you run a crook, <laughs> you think you can point and shoot him, but the truth is that he may just turn around and, you know, pick your pocket while you're not looking. Right. I think that, that there are people like Steve Bannon and, and the Heritage Foundation who, of course, don't all also don't see eye to eye, who really think that Trump is a weapon that they can point and shoot in any direction. But what they are missing, I think, is the fact that he is out as a weapon, what they call a loose cannon, one that is rolling around on the deck of the ship of state, and you have no idea which way he's going to point. But what was going on today in the courthouse in New York is just such a glaring example of this cheesy 
vulgarian, this ridiculous buffoon, this massive fraud, this terrible joke. Everybody, all, all the sort of, you know, the the in crowd in New York have always saw him as a joke. But of course, you know, he had all that bitterness uh, from coming mm -hmm. from from the outer boroughs, and he came in and wanted to prove, you know, wanted to show them all up. And my God, what happened? He became president of the United States, and then of course, giving a narcissist massive amounts of power is about the most dangerous thing you could do. And this sob has never been held to account ever in his life. Never, ever. No. And yet people and like Michael Cohen and his loyal accountant, Alan Weisselberg, yes. they went to jail. But he hasn't yeah. gone to jail, for God's sake. No, no, and he's not going to. And I think, at least, well, I don't think he's going to. And, you know, what I don't understand is why anybody pledges loyalty to Donald Trump because he's made it very clear over and over again he is quite willing to cut you loose if you are dragging him down in any way. Loyalty only goes in one direction for him. And it's, you know, when he was first elected, I thought he would get bored. I thought that he would find the actual work of being president too tedious. But I didn't figure on just how much he enjoys the spotlight and how much he enjoys giving orders and um, so he's coming back again for another try, this time mainly, I think, to stay out of jail. But uh, you would think that he could just retire on his laurels at this point and say, yes, I was president of the United States. Take that, Manhattan. <laughs> well, he's uh, unfortunately out to make the rest of us crazy, which he does, and I hate even yeah. talking about him, but what can you do? Um, I thank you for joining well, us. Well, you can get out there and organize. So. Oh, that's true. But from my <laughs> I point of say, view, I, I, I hate talking about him. But um, yes. I agree. Get out and organize. For God's sake, the country needs you. And we're at, at an inflection point uh, where Absolutely. Um, we're about to see the end of democracy and the beginning of American fascism. I thank you for joining us, Rebecca Gordon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Ian. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Rebecca Gordon, who teaches in the philosophy department at the University of San Francisco and for the university's Leo T. McCarthy Center for Public Service and the Common Good. She's the author of Mainstreaming Torture, American Nuremberg, the U.S. officials who should stand trial for post-9-11 war crimes, and is now at work on a new book on the history of torture in the United States. A regular contributor to Tom Dispatch, her latest article is Trump's Schedule F for Failed State. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into Iran's role as an escalation looms following warnings from Tehran that a ground invasion of Gaza is a red line for Iran and its proxy, Hezbollah. Oh, I came here tonight. I got the feeling there's something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. And I'm wondering what it is I should do. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Iranian-American historian Mazia Behouz, who was born in Tehran and has taught at UC Berkeley and Stanford University and is currently a professor of history at San Francisco State University. He's the author of two books on the history of the Iranian left, Rebels with a Cause, followed by Perspectives on the History of Rebels with a Cause in Iran, a collection of interviews and articles on leftist movements in Iran that was translated into Persian and published in Iran. His latest book is Iran at War, Interaction with the Modern World and the Struggle with Imperial Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mazier Behrouz. Thank you, Ian. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Mazier. And just touching on the struggle between Iran and Russia, that seems to be <laughs> quite over at the moment because just yesterday, Monday, the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov arrived in Iran for meetings and was greeted, of course, with great ceremony. And this was, of course, on the 40th anniversary of the bombing of the Marine Barracks in Beirut, which was conducted by Hezbollah 
which is obviously connected to Iran. So let's just talk about, before we get into the war between Israel and Hamas, give us your assessment of the current state of the apparent, it's not an alliance yet, but whatever's going on between Russia and Iran. How do you see it? Yes, uh, so this is an alliance of convenience. They don't really have, uh, it seems to me at least, any strategic uh, common ground with each other, except that uh, both Russia, Iran, and by extension China, uh, are under pressure from Western powers for a variety of reasons, for different reasons. So uh, the Iranian government is pretty much isolated internationally, and under a lot of sanctions, and uh, Russia is under the same circumstance and uh, because of this invasion of Ukraine. And uh, it seems only uh, natural that uh, they are getting closer to each other. And since China is also under uh, some pressure from the United States and, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and European countries, um, the three of them are getting uh, closer to each other. Uh, uh, but is this uh, closeness strategic or is it tactical? I mean, I think that's the question. And uh, it seems that as far as long as pressure on, on the three of them uh, continues, uh, this tactical alliance is a way for them to kind of uh, lessen the pressure on, uh, on all three of them. So today at the UN Security Council, Secretary of State Blinken addressed Iran and warned Iran not to get involved in this war and escalate the war, particularly uh, through their proxy Hezbollah in Lebanon. And this message has been happening ever since the war between Israel and Hamas broke out. So there's obviously a great deal of concern on the part of the United States that they don't want Iran to get involved but Iran has lots of ability to create mischief, do they not? They can, U.S. troops are vulnerable in Iraq and in Syria. So what's your sense of why the U.S. government keeps expressing concerns about Iran? And Iran, of course, has said that if Israel goes ahead with the ground invasion of Gaza, then things may escalate. Or I, I mean, I can't remember exactly what the threat was, but it was pretty clear that they felt that Israel would cross a red line? Well, it, it seems to me that uh, the U.S. does not want this conflict to escalate and expand and inflame the region. It, it makes sense for the Secretary of State to uh, try to uh, convince other actors not to get involved, sending aircraft carriers to the Mediterranean Sea, uh, stopping uh, missiles fired from Yemen toward Israel, uh, and also diplomatic pressure. Uh, they don't want, uh, for obvious reasons, for this conflict to escalate. Uh, at the same time, it seems, they want to uh, give a free hand to Israel uh, to do what it is doing, which is uh, you know, uh, conducting collective punishment on the population in Gaza. Uh, which can only get worse if a uh, ground attack is initiated by Israel. So um, warning Iran not to get involved directly uh, uh, is a way of de-escalating this situation. But the question is, does Iran have uh, uh, operational control over Hezbollah or uh, over Hamas uh, and that, uh, I think, is uh, in doubt. That is to say, while they are proxies of Iran, uh, I don't, do not believe that Iran can order them around to attack or not to attack. Uh, the case of Hamas is very much, I think, obvious in that um, Iran does not seem to have known about this attack, and all intelligence, Western intelligence suggests that uh, Iran was not uh, directly involved in that attack. Uh, and, and the reason for that is that Iran's security apparatus has been penetrated by Israel. And had Iran known about the attack uh, on, on October 7th, 
uh, Israelis would have found out. Uh, and uh, uh, so this seems to be a decision made by Hamas, uh, and preparations for this is a you know have been going on for a long time. It, it wasn't just a one single. Uh, eventless attack uh, across the border into Israel and uh, things like that. So, uh, so my conclusion is that yes, Iran trains, Iran find, uh, provides financial support uh, definitely uh, to Hezbollah, but also to Hamas. Uh, but uh, I do not think Iran has direct operational control over either movement. But President Biden, a couple of days ago, said that he believes that Hamas attacked Israel and conducted such brutal war crimes against civilians was because they wanted to scuttle the Abraham Accords between Israel and Saudi Arabia. But the person who benefits most from scuttling the Abraham Accords is Iran. So you don't see a link there? Well, it's not just Iran. It's the Palestinian. Uh, 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 it, it is Hamas, uh, and it is other uh, players in the in in the region. Um, I would say, to a degree, it's also Arab Street. Do not want this. I mean, the governments that are making this Abrahamian uh, agreement with Israel, none of them are representative of the people. They are all to some extent dictatorships from Saudi Arabia to UAE to Qatar to uh, Bahrain to uh, all of them are dictatorships Uh, all of them Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, so that could have been one reason for doing this especially when it comes to Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabia is the custodian of the holy the two holy cities Makkah and Medina so uh, its position in the Arab world and the greater Islamic world is very different than the other ones. Uh, and uh, so that could be one reason. But another reason uh, one can also mention is that the Palestinian issue, uh, uh, the two-state solution, which is, uh, according to the United Nations resolutions, has to, uh, uh, Palestinians are entitled to have their own state, has been forgotten. Israel continues to grab land uh, and uh, on the West Bank, and uh, Gaza has been under quarantine. Two million people living in a very small area, 25 miles by five miles, and uh, and of course this is uh, unbearable life for them. So this attack, as uh, uh, this terrorist act, was uh, has put the Palestinian. Uh, issue the Palestinian uh, uh, predicament back on the political map. So there can be a second reason or second uh, result, consequence of this, uh, this attack. So let's talk about the custodians of the holy shrines in, in Islam, the Saudis. Uh, third holiest shrine, of course, is Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem. And, of course, when Hamas was slaughtering Israelis, they were rejoicing on the streets of Tehran, at least the Revolutionary Guard Corps and the Pasadaran and Besiege and the morality police and the, all of the people that support this regime, uh, which is, you know, its own people. They're perfectly happy to kill. They've suppressed the women. Then the, and just another young woman is now brain dead because the morality police beat her into a stupor. So what's going on with that regime? And when, when they say death to America, death to Israel, as far as I can tell, they mean it. Well, first of all, the demonstration in celebration of what Hamas did was state-sponsored and wasn't that big. And uh, the uh, general public opinion in Iran, it seems to uh, uh, not well, one can say not support or be neutral about this conflict. Uh, there's a lot of uh, problem between public opinion in Iran and the, and the government in Iran and its policies. So, um, uh, 
so I would say uh, the uh, government in Iran, the, the Islamic Republic of Iran, has its own ideological goals, and uh, which uh, involves not trusting the West, particularly the United States, and uh, the supporting the Palestinian cause uh, in that uh, the uh, advocating the destruction of Israel rather than uh, accommodation of Palestinians by creating a second state. So uh, the, the policies of the Islamic Republic uh, uh, it, uh, it translates into support for these proxy uh, movements in Syria, uh, which Iran played an uh, important role in defending the regime during the civil war in Iraq, uh, and uh, in Lebanon, uh, and of course uh, in Gaza. Well, from the Israeli point of view, they see Iran as their main enemy, obviously, because Iran is on three borders. They have Quds and the IGC in Syria, they have Hezbollah in Lebanon, and they have Hamas in Gaza. So what is the regime's, when they say death to Israel, what, what do they want? I mean, I guess their aim is to liberate Al-Aqsa, right, in a, in a challenge to the Saudis. Do they want to become the custodians of Islam? And well, uh, Al-Aqsa's custodian is the king of Jordan. Sure. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, the Saudi king is the custodian of the, uh, of the shrines in Mecca and Medina. So... What is the ultimate goal? I think the ultimate goal, as I mentioned, as they have mentioned, is to uh, have a single state in Israel where Palestinians uh, and Israelis would uh, have a one-man, one vote, which would, in effect, uh, cancel Israel as a Jewish state uh, if there is a democratic process there, because the Palestinians are eventually, if not already, outnumber. Uh, 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 Jewish population in Israel. I'm talking about Palestinian, Muslim, and Christian together. So uh, that is the uh, uh, that that is the official line in Iran. Um, can they do it? Uh, can they uh, manage this? Israel has the strongest army, navy, and air force in the Middle East. It has the backing and umbra- protection umbrella of United States. Uh, it has a very healthy economy, uh, and it is a nuclear power. Uh, is that uh, uh, goal a realistic one? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, so what what are they trying to do? I think they're trying to conduct a, uh, a, a war of attrition with Israel, uh, to gradually surround Israel with, uh, uh, with their uh, proxy movements in order to make life harder for Israel. Um, Does Iran want to uh, be the custodian of uh, the Dome of Rock and Al-Aqsa Mosque? Uh, uh, Muslims call it the Haram al-Sharif. I I do not think so. I think they want it to be returned uh, into the Muslim hand rather than staying being part of Israel. I'm talking about occupied East Jerusalem. Right. Well, I just wondered whether it goes back to the 8th century, you know, the the contest between Shiism and Sunnism. Yeah. You don't think that's that's a factor, that to avenge the murder of Ali? Uh, I don't think they go that far. Uh, and... Uh, the murder of Ali was conducted. Uh, you're talking about the first Shia Imam, am I right? Yeah, I, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Ali was murdered by an offshoot group uh, called uh, Kawarej, or the Exiters, uh, which was which were people in his camp who objected to his compromising policies toward uh, the caliph of that time, or the uh, the person who pre- who wanted to be caliph and challenge Ali's caliphate uh, back in the 7th century. So uh, I don't think that historical uh, episode and, uh, and, the, and the assassination of Ali has much to do with the situation today. Right. Well, 
the reason I bring that up is that Iran's government is a theocratic government, right? Now, many Iranians that I speak to say they're nothing more than thieves in clerical robes, but they do have an ideology and a religious, you know, and that's one of the problems. You know, the religious nationalists in Israel have moved the country to the right and then been, you know, increased the settler movement and increased the humiliation and hostility towards Palestinians. So religious movements, by definition, to my mind, are are dangerous, whether they're, you know, the religious right in this country, you know, in terms of its influence over the Republican Party or the Ayatollah uh, Khamenei. And, of course, his son, uh, Moshtabar, wants to be the next supreme leader, even though he doesn't have the religious credentials. So what's your sense of this theocracy? Is it going to survive? And what underpinned it? How does it... Well, I'm not into predicting future. <laughs> I'm a historian, so I, I really deal with the past, or to some extent the present. Uh, but I, 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 I do think that uh, uh, Iran will face uh, major changes uh, and upheavals uh, after the passing of the current uh, supreme leader. And uh, we will see how they deal with it. Of course, they are, I'm sure they're trying to uh, prepare the ground for uh, such an eventual uh, uh, passage of power from one supreme leader to the new one. Uh, will it happen? How will it, how will it happen? How does it work? I'm not sure. And, um, uh, and by the way, I would like to also add that Iran is a theocracy, but its interpretation of Shia Islam uh, and of Islam in general, Shiism in particular, uh, is a very narrow interpretation, uh, which involves uh, anti-imperialism uh, and uh, anti-Western uh, and, uh, uh, and many other uh, Shia scholars, Shia thinkers, political activists, uh, uh, who consider themselves good Muslims do not agree with these, uh, uh, this narrow interpretation. Uh, and they continuously uh, argue that uh, or this, this narrow interpretation is it's not uh, aligned with the Islam that they understand, they know. So one must, I think, bear that in mind, that uh, it is a theocracy, but it is a theocracy with a very particular interpretation this is you know you just mentioned like christian right or christian extremists in this country um, they, they, you have them then you have martin luther king who is a christian uh, you, you have jesse jackson who is a christian so you have different interpretations of faith and when it is politicized when it is it involves politics and political goals and ideological goals uh, then it becomes narrower and narrower uh, and that's where we stand today. Well, Mazia Beruz, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Iranian-American historian Mazia Behrouz, who was born in Tehran and has taught at UC Berkeley and Stanford University and is currently a professor of history at San Francisco State University. He's the author of two books on the history of the Iranian left, Rebels with a Cause, followed by Perspectives on the History of Rebels with a Cause in Iran a collection of interviews and articles on leftist movements in Iran that were translated into Persian and published in Iran. And his latest book is Iran at War, Interaction with the Modern World and the Struggle with Imperial Russia. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, 
And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Disappeared by